Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Danielle DiMartino Booth, CEO and Chief Strategist for Quill Intelligence. She's also the author of Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. Danielle, welcome. Great to be here, Alex. How are you? Very well. So, the week's passed in the markets. Um, the turmoil continues across both the economy. Um, we see increased uh, volatility in financial markets. I wonder if you can sort of maybe give us a bit of a backdrop to this tug of war that we're seeing between what we're seeing in the economy versus what we're seeing in financial markets. Well, I think that this week has been something of the, 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 that the past week has been something of an inflection point in the U.S. economy and how we're seeing it play out in the financial markets. Uh, for weeks and weeks now, the markets have been keying off of Fed liquidity being more than sufficient to offset any kind of short-term economic turmoil caused by the coronavirus in the United States. And what we're realizing is that because there was no coordinated response at the national level to the virus, and because so many states, uh, big state economies, open prematurely, they're now having to go back and reclose their economies. The taverns, the bars were closed in Texas and in Florida uh, by, by their governors. This was a huge step back in terms uh, uh, politically for them. Uh, turncoats, they're being called on social media, and, and that's, the, that's the kinder terms. And the, the prospect now is that we can't, even, we can't even pretend to talk about a V-shaped economy in the United States. Now we have to move the discussion on to a W-shaped economy and what the implications are going forward and therefore what the the Federal Reserve is going to do and what the federal government is going to do in order to implement further stimulus measures. I can promise you that Washington DC is going to be hopping over the weekend because it's going to be in the best interest of both the administration and both parties to pass uh, further stimulus measures very quickly. It's interesting this this continual stimulus. You know, it feels that you know the markets just can't survive. You know, the financial market, um, as soon as it starts to hear that the stimulus is going to be wound back or that there, there's an issue, they start to pull back. You know, what what sort of market do we live in where it just needs continual stimulus? Well, I, I think what's important to recognize, especially here in the United States, is that the banks are frozen. The banks are completely frozen. We know that loan loss provisions continue to pile up and that banks continue to set aside more money uh, for future losses, but nothing's been realized. And there's an, there's an inability to foreclose on somebody's home, even if they're several months delinquent. The Trump administration recently extended out through the end of August the ability to, to get forbearance on your mortgage payment. And there's also discussions of whether or not there's going to be extensions of rent moratoriums throughout the country. So you can't evict people. But underneath the surface of keeping households with roofs over their heads are huge losses that are piling up at lenders. 
Somebody eventually has to pay the bill. So this, this dynamic of constant stimulus that is required to prevent the credit cycle from starting is something the likes of which we've truly never, ever seen. And what the implications are is very difficult to say because normally when a credit cycle begins, it starts to set off a chain of daisies, a daisy chain, a, a set of dominoes. One thing follows, fo follows the other. But right now we're not seeing that because what's happening in the household sector is completely suspended. And yet you're still seeing corporate insolvencies pile up despite the fact that the Fed has put record levels of liquidity into the markets. I would note though that the last two weeks, Fed liquidity has, uh, has come down and just that little, little bit of taking the foot off of the accelerator in terms of the printing press for the Fed has been enough to really rattle markets these last two weeks. It's interesting about the sort of the Fed pulling back. It, it almost like when the when the first crisis, you know, the Corona crisis started filtering through, there was just a lot of liquidity that was being pumped in. But I think the reality seems to be setting in that the Fed just can't solve the broader solvency issue that's out there, and and maybe the confidence around the Fed trying to, you know, you know, backstop the whole credit market. They just can't do it. Um, they, they can't. But I, I I truly think that Jay Powell thinks that they can. And that in and of itself is problematic uh, because what we've seen in the United States, and we're not even finished with the second quarter technically, but we've seen almost two and a half trillion dollars of non-financial debt get added onto the balance sheets of a lot of companies. And that is going to have huge implications for investors going forward because there's going to be so much less in the way of collateral and value and assets when companies do declare bankruptcy that, that, that can be handed back to creditors because all of this extra debt has been amassed, creating these zombie corporations, which you've interviewed my good friend, Jim Bianco. It, it's up to one, one in five American companies, 20% 20, um, 20 of, of American companies are now zombies. It's it's a it's a crazy a crazy world that we live in. Is that you've got so many zombie companies, and they're you know these are the guys who just can't even meet their interest repayments. But then you have a whole other stream of of businesses that actually make nothing or almost zero, but they're still allowed to survive based on these low interest rates. That you know is is sort of the broader Fed backdrop. That they just need to keep propping up everything. Um, you know, are we are, you know do capital markets really even exist anymore in this environment? Well, that's the thing. And that is the real catch. The, the Fed destroyed price discovery in the stock market generations ago with the establishment of, of, of the Greenspan put. So this is, again, generations ago. But the Fed has always left credit markets uh, to, to price of their own volition. And that is no longer the case. Price discovery in the credit markets has now also been corrupted by Fed policy. So if you're an investor, you're sitting there throwing your hands up in the air because you don't know how to price out an income stream. You, you can't look necessarily at, at what a, a company's undergoing business is to determine where that bond should trade. So this is very, very destructive on a long-term basis. And it's very destructive to underlying veteran long-term investors in this space because it, it's made their job that much more difficult. And Alex, I'll tell you what I've, I've turned to doing mm -hmm. rather than try and follow, because I can't, I can literally cannot keep up with the stream of bankruptcy filings, despite everything that the Fed is doing. I try and follow the largest 
healthiest companies and see what they're doing because I think that they're a better reflection of what's going on in the underlying economy. So I'll give you one example, Accenture. Uh, they, they employ a half million people worldwide and they've got a, a great IT consulting business. So they're gonna cut 10% of their US staff. They're freezing hiring, they're pulling back. Exxon Mobil is another one. They never ever in 2015, 2016, when oil prices crashed, they never had cutbacks and job cuts. They came through the whole crisis without it. And they just announced today job cuts. So you're starting to see in some of the strongest players with the strongest balance sheets and the most robust cash flow that they're pulling back. And that tells you what the underlying health of the economy is and gives you a better idea for the value or lack thereof in the weakest players that are being kept alive by Fed policy. It's it's really interesting, and we've seen a similar a similar issue here in, in Australia with a large large number of companies. Obviously, Qantas, our, our national airline, having six thousand job cuts. Um, it seems, and and they've announced yesterday, I think fifteen billion dollars in cuts over the next three years. So that's income that's that's disappearing. Um, because- Absolutely, and, and Qantas is it's 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 putting its entire three hundred and eighty fleet on ice for we don't know how long. So. Yeah, no, these are, and that's being replicated in airlines around the world if airlines are not declaring bankruptcy. So, and meanwhile, you've got American Airlines taking out an extra $2 billion of debt, even though any credit investor worth their salt can tell you that they're still going to declare bankruptcy just with a lot more debt. It, it seems again that, you know, that the market hasn't priced this in, you know, what, what needs to change for people in the market to price this in? We've, you know, we've got almost this casino that continues on, on financial markets that, you know, it's all good and well speculating on, on small stocks and biotech stocks that may or may not have a, a vaccine or, or some other cancer drug that, that could work. But we've also got problems where we've got companies that are pretty solid, you know, in terms of, you know, understand what they are, what their cash flows look like. And, when you start to model them out of the next two, three, four years, it looks terrible. And yet the prices don't seem to reflect that. They don't. And the prices are having a hard time reflecting anything because they can't, they can't tell. The Fed has never ventured this far into credit allocation. So it's, it's impossible to determine, okay, is this company, so, uh, so, so this company has been downgraded to junk. So therefore, does that Carnival Cruises had the second downgrade? Um, I believe Moody's had already downgraded it to junk, and then S and P followed. Well, technically, that means that Carnival Cruise Lines can now be purchased by the Fed as a fallen angel. But if you're also at the same time saying, "Well, we can't have any cruises until the middle of September," <laughs> as a bond investor, you're saying, "Well, should I rely on the fact that the Fed can purchase the bonds, or should I should I rely on the fact that the company's de facto not a going concern mm-hmm. very difficult it, it's 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 weird you know like in the in the u.s particularly it feels that the stock market now is the economy um and so there's this constant game to pump that in the australian market you know we've got a similar sort of problem where i think the housing market is still seen as the economy and and every uh, you know, little policy that, that the government is working on is is there to provide support to, to housing still, um, and lower interest rates and and you know maintaining that that premise. You know, this this again comes back to my concerns that we seem to be hollowing out what capitalism is supposed to do in market clearing. 
that's exactly what is happening. That is exactly what is happening. And it gives me chills just to listen to what you're describing happening in Australia, because that's exactly what was happening in 2006 and 2007, when I was a rookie at the Federal Reserve, when I was still inside the Fed. And there were all of these programs being being bandied about and discussed about how to make sure nobody lost their home and markets didn't clear and home prices stayed supported at all costs. And what we ended up doing by not allowing the housing market to clear is 12 years later, housing is has been invaded by investors. Uh, rentals for single family homes are, are higher than they've ever been. And because of a zero rate environment for as long as we had it, the single family homes and the apartments that have been developed over the past decade have mostly been 80% been in luxury. So now you've got all, all of these big high-rise condos in these huge cities when when America is trying to move out to the suburbs. And what worries me is not so much that the exact same thing is going to happen in Australia, but just the fact that we've got this massive global recession downturn, the most synchronized one that we've had in the post-World War II era. But at the same time, Australia, and I would, I would say also Canada, are facing balance sheet recessions, which are very, very difficult for central banks to combat, but they get in this mess in the first place because their inflation metrics are not picking up what is happening in residential real estate prices and in, in stock market and in, in bond market prices as well. The inflation inflation conversation is fascinating because you know in Australia, we've, we've been tra- targeting a, a 2% inflation. You know, globally, they're trying to sort of target that level, but, but none of the central banks have been able to, to generate that inflation target or hit that inflation target over the last 10, 20 years um, in, in developed markets. So you know, are, are the, you know, these central banks just totally off the mark in terms of what they're trying to target? Well, they are. First of all, they shouldn't have inflation targets to begin with. It's it's rare that I would begin to agree with Alan Greenspan, but before he left the Fed, he held the line in saying that the best inflation target for the Fed to have was zero, and that that was the one that, that businesses and that households best dealt with, because if you have a 2% inflation target, by definition, in your lifetime, you're going to see a huge degradation of the, of the purchasing power of your currency. But when Alan Greenspan left, the battle was lost and Bernanke and and Yellen were able to push through this 2% inflation target. But you come to find out, and especially given my perspective as a former insider, that it's by design that they can never get beyond that 2% target. They can never hit that 2% target because of the poor construct of the inflation target to begin with. It understates housing prices, which are the biggest input. And it also understates dramatically healthcare inputs because they use Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement rates, which is nowhere near what the average American family has to pay for healthcare. So the Fed knows by design that it's never going to be able to hit, to hit this 2% target because it's not properly computing inflation to begin with, but they don't care. That's irrelevant to the discussion. The, the false 2% target gives them a shield to hide behind so that they can make quantitative easing a permanent tool in the toolbox and continue to print forever. It's a, it's an it's an incredible little cloak and dagger style approach where they're, where they're coming in and it allows them to to keep printing um, indefinitely, you know. And and the problem is that people seem to to think that this is okay. You know, we've also got new fans coming out from the you know the MMT space. 
um, saying that deficits don't matter as well. So you've got it, you know, because because the the central banks can't make it work. Well, now let's rely on the fiscal policy to come through. You know, what, what's your thoughts, I guess, around fiscal policy? Maybe then taking up the slack. Well, clearly, fiscal policy has been enormous. If you want to think about what's happening in the post-COVID U.S. economy, think of a barbell approach. You've got the Federal Reserve keeping the wealthiest wealthy by putting an artificial floor underneath junk bonds that should have long since gone into liquidation, gone into Chapter 11, gone into bankruptcy. So that's really helping out the fat cats, private equity, investors, credit investors, hedge funds, you name it. At the opposite end of the barbell are the lowest income earners, and they're making more money than they had prior to COVID when they were working. One in five recipients of the extra $600 in weekly unemployment insurance is making twice what they made before they lost their job. So there's absolutely no incentive for a large cohort of the U.S. economy to rejoin the workforce. The caveat is that that ends on July the 31st. So you've got the the, the stock market coming back down, which is going to keep, it's the only thing that keeps President Trump up at night. So you're going to have all the lawmakers on Capitol Hill scrambling over this weekend to find a way to get to the next stimulus bill so that households don't actually have to have this day of reckoning. So who knows what this next stimulus measure will look like. The Democrats were actually suggesting $2,000 per month for every household that made $120,000 or less for the life of the coronavirus until a vaccine was found. Uh, That would... I mean, the, the, the thought makes, it, it just, it, it turns my hair white. And these are the types of fiscal spending measures. These are the types of debts and deficits that actually put inflation on the front burner and make it a true danger because we rely on foreign ownership of 34% of our, of our publicly traded outstanding treasury bills. But these are the, but again, the stimulus measures in the United States are taking care of the lowest income earners and they're taking care of the highest income measures through monetary policy through the Fed. But the problem is you're not seeing the credit cycle take hold in the household sector because you have all the forbearance, because you have all the rental moratoriums, because you don't have the car repossessions going on that you normally would. But that does not mean that the damage on lender balance sheets is not piling up quietly in the background that's going to become very problematic, whether it's the third or the fourth quarter, whenever the stimulus, the gallows humor is after election day when the stimulus runs out. It, it's interesting, you know, that you talk about this stimulus you know, running out and, and sometimes you've got to wonder, will it ever run out? But then the other problem is, is at what point does this social unrest that we're seeing where people seem to be angry about everything. Um, you know, we've got so much, so much social unrest that seems to have come out of not so much nowhere, but it's, it's come out. Um, I think from a lot of people just frustrated about their lives, you know, in the last financial crisis where there was the bailout of wall street, we had occupy wall street movement popping up, right. And people were furious about support for these places, but we've actually seen the same sort of thing in terms of bailouts of hedge funds, bailouts of zombie companies, um, and people, you know, is this just a, a nice bait and switch for a lot of people? This, this, you know, broader social uprising, I guess, really failing to see the biggest threat to their lives, which is the economy and and what the Federal Reserve is, is doing with low interest rates, the inequality that that brings. A lot of these, um, you know, fiscal uh, stimulus programs is not really helping the the true parts of the economy. Is that a fair assumption? It is a fair assumption because. 
the longer that you have uh, a large portion of the U.S. workforce out of the workforce, and let me let me put that in context for you, please. On May the 8th, there were 30.9 million Americans collecting unemployment insurance in some form, whether it was the, the emergency unemployment insurance programs that were rolled out uh, through the CARES Act, through the biggest stimulus act that we've had, or whether through regular state unemployment insurance programs. 30.9 million Americans, 18.8% of the 134.6 million strong U.S. workforce. That number as of June 6th had only come down to 30.6 million. So you've had very little, 400,000 people uh, come back into the workforce in the aggregate. And that type of economic sclerosis, the longer you're out of the workforce, if there's one thing that the slowest recovery in post-war, in the post-war era has taught Americans is that the longer a worker is out of the workforce, the least the less capable they are of rejoining the workforce. You get the skills atrophy. And we've had a massive skills um, uh, disruption in our, in our workforce for over a decade now. And we're piling onto that by creating zombie workers and at the same time creating zombie companies with monetary policies. So this is the worst of two possible outcomes, if you will, given what the stimulus measures are doing on the, the federal and the the fiscal and, and the monetary sides. Yeah, the thing that's interesting with with the amount of amount of jobs that have been lost, you know, a lot of these is also in small business too, because the small business doesn't have the ability to go and issue bonds and and go and uh, you know keep themselves alive. You, you saw Amazon um, was it last week or the week before going and raising a few billion dollars at almost you know with less than one percent interest. You know we are we're actually continuing to to you know fail to allow for for these new business or smaller businesses to to survive we're actually creating this you know larger and larger businesses that end up dominating capitalism starts to fail and then you've got the other issue where you don't get the small businesses that are the ones that will probably start to rehire um I'm trying to sort of frame it out in my mind in terms of the whole situation with low interest rates and the, and the bond support that the that the treasury's been doing is actually is, is failing, it's totally missing its mark in terms of actually getting people back to work. You know, that's absolutely correct. Uh, you know, I was watching a film of Alan Greenspan um, who, who was being reappointed by Clinton at the time. This was a historic, looking back type film. And, you know, the thought occurred to me that it was the Clinton administration that cut back the most in terms of the welfare programs that we had in the United States, which is somewhat ironic because he was a Democratic president. Um, But since then, you've seen small business, uh, the the, the share of small business workers as a a percentage of the workforce come down from 52% to about 47% of the workforce prior to COVID. And what's happened after COVID is even more devastating for the small business sector. You, you've, when the Democrats became pro-commerce, in addition to the Republicans being pro-commerce, I'm backing up a bit, you ended up having everybody in favor of companies of corporate America, and you ended up leaving the innovators behind as a result, the smaller companies, the mom and pops, who might become larger. So Fed policy fed the the monopolization that we've seen that's become a huge hindrance for the U.S. economy because you have to innovate in order to grow and to create companies that that, that create jobs. In a post-COVID world, because of how 
poorly executed the, the fiscal stimulus measures have been, we know that we're probably going to lose a third of our small businesses. So the capacity to bring employees into the small business sector, which had already come down to 47% of the workforce, is going to be even more damaged in the long term after this COVID crisis. And that is going to be something that I think is, is going to stay with our economy and, and weigh on, on the ability for the economy to regenerate itself as we come out of this recession. It's a it's a, a really a hard hard thing to sort of understand because you know, the what what the policies that come out from governments the same in Australia it seems to really continue to support the big business um, and and really fails to to you know, think about these small mum and pop style style organisations that do employ so many people. Um, the next thing I thought I'd, I'd sort of transition to is is sort of China. I know you've been pretty prominent um, in sort of talking a little bit about sort of the trade deal and that uh, there's some issues with China um, finally signing the trade deal, but with a caveat. Can you give us a bit more context on on that? Well, in September, uh, and and Navarro knew about this back in September, but last September, the Chinese asked that an unforeseen circumstances clause be placed into the trade agreement, a force majeure type of clause that is much more typical of a commercial or an industrial contract, but very, very rare to see in a trade deal. So the timing of asking for that in September raises enough eyebrows in and of itself. But fast forward to November the 17th, when the first documented case of of coronavirus uh, came out of Wuhan and appreciate that it was almost two months before the Chinese signed the trade deal that they really did keep what was happening in Wuhan under wraps so that they could sign this trade deal that it was, that was effectively um, void the minute it was signed because there was this massive pandemic that was growing and Chinese had been allowed to, of course, travel throughout that entire time. We've seen stories come out in the last week about uh, about the, the coronavirus being present in the waters of Italy in, in December. We know that the Taiwanese, uh, that, that they canceled a sporting event in, in Wuhan in December. This was before any of this was really public. Um, and we're starting to see evidence in California that it was probably around as early as December as well. But my point is, if, if, if you're going to sacrifice your own people and sacrifice the citizens of other countries as well by allowing the unfettered uh, travel of people knowing that they're carrying a virus with them to every corner of the planet, I think that there's something that is so morally reprehensible about that, that when I gave a recent interview, I, I called it an act of war. And because they're hundreds of thousands of lives have been lost. It's simply a fact. Uh, so I think it's extremely, uh, I, if it's not a learning moment for the rest of the world to see the lengths to which the Chinese officials will go in order to ensure the long-term goals of their economic growth and eventual economic domination of the global economy. If you don't understand how far that they're able to go at this point, then shame on you, because you should understand that they'll sacrifice their own people and that they'll take the lives of others in other countries. And that is, it's cold, it's calculating, and it's how they've managed to keep their economy going and take the rest of the countries very much down with it. I'm not saying the United States um, 
reacted properly to the coronavirus. Uh, and there is a very good chance that President Trump himself knew also when he signed the trade agreement because intelligence briefings as early as early January had the Wuhan virus, the, the, the virus that was in Wuhan at the time, excuse me, uh, in those intelligence briefings. So it might have even been equal on both sides just to just to set up the ceremony that that and, and give the financial markets something that they could celebrate going into the new year that, wow, we can finally put this whole trade war behind us. Whereas, in fact, we know that that the trade, the actual trade, if you will, has yet to happen. Uh, well, and, and we and we've seen that again with Navarro sort of giving some context and then having to back it back it back up in terms of uh, his comments about the trade deal falling over. It's that a con- constant stimulus that's there. But what I, I wanted to touch on one specific thing with, with China is that particularly for Australia, um, you know, there's a there's a constant tension because you know there's this feel of hold on a second we don't want to be overrun but at the same time we realize them as such a key trading partner such a big proponent of our uh you know our economy through education through mining um through travel and tourism and so forth so it becomes a real a real uh, struggle um i think probably for the australian um government as well in terms of how to deal with it but i, I also wanted to get your feelings on sort of is, is this likely to backfire on China? It feels that there is this now tension with Huawei, with, with their 5G network and the pushback in, in the UK. Um, you know, what's, what's your thoughts there? Well, I think that if there's ever going to be a moment where the world paused, right? Because there were 116 other countries that joined with Australia in calling for an independent inquiry. And I, I truly applaud Australia uh, for leading that charge because there's so much that the epidemiologists don't know about the virus because the World Health Organization uh, never, never fulfilled its duty in making its way into China and getting the evidence, gathering it on, on its own. Um, but you're right, 24%, there's one example, 24% of all U.S. auto supplies come from China. Uh, the, the travel and tourism industry, the educational uh, infrastructure in the states of Massachusetts and California and my state, Texas, they're being devastated because of the simple amount of the huge amount of money that comes into our college and university systems and our private schools from the Chinese. So there's there's no doubt that, that there's there's nothing free. There's nothing. There's a huge cost to uh, to re. To, to, to changing the way these massive economies approach their relationship with China. And I'm not saying there's a perfect answer, um, but, but it's definitely something that you must keep in mind because it is 17% of global G- GDP. And you know the hope is that what they're doing in Hong Kong, uh, that they step back and they quit the saber rattling and that they don't succeed in, in becoming the world's largest economy because of how and how, how we know their methods play out um, in, in the real world because of this coronavirus. I'm hoping that this, this crisis is a good wake-up call for the rest of the year, for, for the rest of the world, excuse me, and, and that we can find a way to rebalance the world economy such that it's not so dependent on China going forward. It, it's an interesting piece about sort of China's, you know, role in, in the broader economy, in you know, the broader world economy, because one of the things that, that comes comes to mind is you, know, you talked about sort of uh, 
you know, China as being seen as a real key component. And a lot of countries have been working with China to try and, you know, have closer ties there. But you now have to think, you know, from, from a supply chain perspective, you know, for a lot of companies that relied on China, now the questions at a lot of boards for, for large corporations will be, hold on a second, do we have the right diversification across our um, supply chains that, that we feel comfortable with? And a lot of these, you know, a lot of parts came, even medical um, goods as well came, came from China, which will now start to move outside China. So, you know, it feels to some degree that we may have reached a, a peak point of China's influence in the global economy. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I think that that could certainly be the case right now. I'm good friends with Leland Miller, who, who runs the China Beige Book. And from everything he's seeing, China is going to be in a full year recession for all of 2020, which most economists can't see, but he's got people on the ground and his, his research is absolutely stellar. If they are to continue down the path of trying to take Hong Kong down, they have to understand they're shooting themselves in the foot because Hong Kong is in many ways the financial conduit that China has always had to the rest of the world the free market, if you will, economy that, that is never possible on the mainland. So if there's ever been um, a, a risk that China that China's rise is to, is to be arrested, that would be now. I would also, by the same token, though, warn you that, that I don't think China's ever going to blow itself up. I don't think that it's going to fade away as being a massive influence uh, on the global economy because it, it does have the ability to slowly decline because of its because of its printing press and the way that it it pushes stimulus out into its own economy that differs from any democracy or, or capitalistic type of, of, of construct. It's a it's interesting um, for, for China's perspective as well is that uh, they still they, they still rely a lot on the, on the US. Um, so you know, it, I know you mentioned a little bit about China holding um, U.S. Treasury bonds as well. You know, how does that relationship play out? You know, do, does the, does the U.S. still need China in the same way that that they did maybe you know three, four, five years ago? Um, that's a good question. Uh, again, I, I see this this coronavirus as being an opportunity here in the United States, especially. I think that, that there is a recognition that when it comes to pharmaceuticals, when it comes to protective equipment, masks, that type of thing, I'm not so sure that we're not going to become independent in, in a sense uh, of China in certain areas that could be very good and innovative for the U.S. economy. And we've also had the shale revolution, which is a complete and total train wreck uh, in the U.S. economy right now. But by that same token, uh, there is something to be said for being on the path to true energy independence and becoming an exporting nation of crude and where that places us uh, on the global stage, which is in a, a sturdier position such that we're not reliant upon a lot of countries that supply China with its crude oil. It's all a matter of interconnectivity, if you will. So uh, we can hope that going forward, that uh, unlike in the aftermath of the financial crisis, companies kind of went right back to their old ways and, and reestablished super tight, uh, very tight ties with, with, with Chinese companies. We can hope that that is not the case. Um, but by the same token, there's been so much investing on the mainland that you don't want to sever ties completely. You just need, I think, a, a better balance. And after spending all the time that I, 
when, when I came over for, for, for your event last August and seeing how much of the country China owns, whether it be all of Lizard Island or the 50-year lease uh, on Melbourne's dock, docks, the biggest in, excuse me, ports, the biggest in the nation. I, I do think that this should also be a wake-up call for Australia to find a little bit more balance away from its dependence on China. And this may be that opportunity. Mm-hmm. So final, final question, and it's not an easy one. But, you know, as we think about you know, what's happening in the broader economic environment, you know, we've got a situation where financial markets still seem to be running pretty hot. You know, how, how do institutional investors, you know, try to think about, you know, what, what to do? You know, can, do, they, do they just sort of continue to participate in the equity market and just assume that uh, the Fed will continue to hold their back? You know, uh, uh, you know, do they go into bonds? Do bonds still provide the same sort of defensive mechanism? Like, how do they need to rebalance or re, re, recalibrate their mind, I guess, in terms of this environment that we're, we're currently living in? Well, I, I do think that the stock market is, is wildly overvalued right now and that the, that the continuation of the coronavirus in the United States is going to have implications for the global economy and make the Fed's job much more difficult. I would add that I think a lot of investors have already long since priced in the Fed buying equities outright because they want they went one further step out on the risk spectrum and started buying high yield bonds. They started buying junk bonds. So technically buying equities brings you one step in on, on the risk spectrum. So I I would say that you that, that investors should be very well hedged and that there are a lot of good ETF structures that they can look at to take advantage of the continuing uh default cycle in the United States that really is not, and it's not even the default cycle, Fitch, Moody's, S&P, it's a global default rate cycle that we're seeing play out before our eyes. Um, But there are ways to play uh, the degradation of credit in in the credit markets that can help uh, hedge any exposure that you might have uh, to the stock market. And I I would say on a personal level, since you're asking about the the value of bonds, I I still own my treasuries and look at them as being a, a a good value, even as low as yields are, because we're coming to the realization that there's not going to be a V-shaped recovery in the U.S. economy and that therefore the recession is going to be more protracted and drawn out and that that, that, that will naturally send investors globally uh, to continue uh, being in treasuries. Mm-hmm. All right. That's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Danielle. Thank you. I appreciate it. Be safe. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.